Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. At the moment, we're dealing with the historical Jesus in context as our series. In the last episode, we began to sketch out one of two scholarly portraits of the historical Jesus, just to illustrate some of the options that have been put forward by historians who have tried to deal with the material we have about this peasant Jesus. Last time we saw Crossan's egalitarian peasant, a non-apocalyptic egalitarian peasant. And today we take a look at E.P. Sanders' sketch of the historical Jesus. We can't do it full justice in such a short period, but nonetheless we sketch out some aspects of E.P. Sanders' idea of the historical Jesus, especially centering on the issue of the temple. Jesus' attitude and ideas about the temple are at the heart of how E.P. Sanders explains who Jesus is, namely an apocalyptic prophet. Once again, we're using a couple of books by E.P. Sanders, Jesus and Judaism, and the historical figure of Jesus to get some of the ideas E.P. Sanders has. I also begin to explore some of the ways in which this picture of Jesus as the apocalyptic prophet has been developed by other scholars, uh, including people like John Meyer and the textbook that the students in the course have been using. Uh, Bart Ehrman's book presents Jesus as precisely that, an apocalyptic prophet. So today we'll see the contrast that sometimes comes about when different historians approach the same materials in different ways. It is possible to come up with the scenario of a non-apocalyptic Jesus, and it's possible to come up with the scenario of an apocalyptic Jesus. Two different historians, well-trained in doing history, coming up with two different explanations based on their methods, the sources, and the problems with those sources that we've been outlining so extensively. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Again, it's just a very brief sketch of E.P. Sanders and does not deal with all the issues. Nonetheless, it gets to the heart of one of the key differences between these two scholars. Soon we'll be heading into our own analysis of some of the materials we have regarding the context of the historical Jesus. I hope you enjoy this episode. had an egalitarian peasant who's cross-cultural, who's trying to establish a peasant society that's equal, and that that was the portrait of Jesus we had with Crossan. Now we have a portrait of Jesus as a Jewish, Judean, apocalyptic prophet. E.P. Sanders is a very well-known scholar of Judaism, of Judean culture in the Hellenistic and Roman periods. He writes extensively on that, so that's where he's coming from. Crossan, by the way, was a New Testament scholar. 
Sanders is also trained in New Testament scholarship, but Crossan's focus has been always on the New Testament. E.P. Sanders' focus has almost always been on Judaism, contemporary with Jesus and before Jesus and after Jesus. Just to give you that quick glimpse of where these guys are coming from, and it influences how they approach things, too. E.P. Sanders' view is very similar. In, in a way, Bart Ehrman doesn't explicitly say this enough, but basically Bart Ehrman is re-expressing E.P. Sanders' view of Jesus as the apocalyptic prophet. John P. Meyer is another guy who's doing a massive, massive tome. He's got three volumes so far. Each one is about 1,000 pages each on the historical Jesus, who likewise has this general idea about Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet. These historians believe that not only was Jesus perceived as an apocalyptic prophet, that they're all agreed on strongly is highly probable, that Jesus was perceived as an apocalyptic prophet. But most of these scholars also say there's a very high likelihood that Jesus himself conceived of himself, understood himself to be an apocalyptic prophet. Those are two different issues, aren't they? For contemporaries to think something about Jesus, and for us to have evidence of them thinking it, versus Jesus' self-consciousness about being something. It's hard to get at self-consciousness, you can imagine. So we're dealing with an apocalyptic Jesus here. The previous one was not apocalyptic. The stress that E.P. Sanders has is the need to place Jesus within the context of Judean culture in the first century. The overall assumption to begin with is that you can expect Jesus to be an observant Jew unless you see evidence otherwise. In other words, you don't start with the assumption that a peasant living in Galilee and Nazareth would reject Judean law and reject Judean customs. You start with the assumption that he would accept them unless you see evidence otherwise. More of an assumption behind the approach here as opposed to an explicitly stated thing. Already off the bat, you're going to have a Judean Jesus unless proven otherwise. You're going to have a, 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 a Jesus that goes along with Judean customs and the Torah unless proven otherwise, in a way. This overall approach, Jesus as a Torah-observant Jew who may have differences of opinion with other Jews, but nonetheless thinks that the Torah is important, means that his conflicts with other Judeans are not the heart that explain why he came to be executed. In other words, his differences of opinions with Pharisees are differences of opinion on how to interpret the Torah. They are not a question of Jesus versus the Torah and the Pharisees for the Torah. It's that everyone agreed on the Torah, and there's just differences of opinion on it. What this implies about the historical narratives, for example, especially the Gospel of Mark, is the Gospel of Mark's story of Jesus puts a spin on things that is not historically accurate. Namely, the Gospel of Mark portrays things as though the Pharisees were after Jesus from the beginning, wanted to kill him from very early on in his whole career, and then finally got him in the end. The apocalyptic frame is very important for understanding the strength of this particular argument about what the Jewish peasant Jesus was like. The apocalyptic frame, what do I mean? I mean this. Jesus is framed by apocalypticism. Jesus was baptized by an apocalyptic prophet. After Jesus, an apocalyptic movement. To propose that Jesus is not apocalyptic runs into a problem already if you have that apocalyptic frame. You have Jesus baptized by an apocalyptic prophet, you have a whole movement that's apocalyptic after him, and yet Crossan, others, arguing that Jesus is totally unapocalyptic. 
E.P. Sanders might point that out in reaction to the suggestion Jesus was not apocalyptic. And it's a strong statement. It doesn't prove that this is correct, but it definitely is something to struggle with for the people who say Jesus was not apocalyptic. Remember that Crossan didn't say Jesus was never apocalyptic. He just said when Jesus engaged in his main program and the sayings we have about his kingdom, he was no longer apocalyptic at the time. So that's how he deals with that issue of John the Baptist being apocalyptic. Sanders' approach, his method, is quite different than Crossan and some other historical Jesus scholars. Sanders begins with this idea. Let's step back from the sayings of Jesus and ignore them for the moment. Let's instead try and work with what we could call basic facts that we know about what Jesus did. Or basic facts generally about Jesus. Things like he was executed under Pontius Pilate would be a basic fact, right? In this way of talking. Sanders starts with deeds. He wants to know what Jesus did and what we can know most reliably about what he did. What stands out as the most probable things that Jesus did as opposed to what he said. Crossan begins with what is the most probable thing that goes back to the earliest stages of the traditions and that Jesus said, right? Said versus did. Very important in understanding how this goes here. The starting point that Sanders uses is an incident that even Crossan would agree goes back to the historical Jesus as something Jesus did, namely the temple incident. Sanders' whole interpretation of the historical Jesus pivots on the temple incident. Most scholars, as I said, agree that that was most likely something Jesus did. So at least Sanders is on solid ground in that respect. He's not just arbitrarily picking something as the key that other historians would say, no, that Jesus didn't do that. So in Mark, it's preserved, and it's also preserved in John, so it's a multiply attested deed. It's in the Gospel of John. Hardly anything is in the synoptics and the Gospel of John, but this is one of them. So in Mark 11, verses 15 and following, and he's now in Jerusalem towards the end of the whole thing, just before he's going to be arrested and executed in the narrative of Mark's Gospel. And then this is what happens in the narrative. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who had sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, etc. But the point is this overturning of the tables in the temple as an action. Sanders says, how should we interpret that action? We can't trust all the rest of the information Marx gives us. However, the incident is multiply attested. It's in John's Gospel, way at the beginning of the Gospel, by the way. So in John's Gospel, this is the first thing Jesus does. In Mark's Gospel, it's almost the last thing he does. But the point is, it's in both multiply attested. Jesus going into the temple, overturning the tables. Sanders interprets this as a symbolic destruction of the temple. Jesus at Passover, at one of the key festivals, when thousands are gathered in Jerusalem, goes openly in public into the temple and overturns the tables to symbolically destroy it. What does this mean? In Sanders' view, this means that Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet who believes God is imminently going to destroy the temple and establish his kingdom with a new temple. And that Jesus himself believed he had a role in it. And the overturning of the temple tables is a symbolic, symbolic of Jesus actually playing a role in God's final intervention 
in the apocalyptic worldview. Okay, so he gets that set up as a key deed that virtually all historians would agree on as historical, and then works back from it. Now that we know that Jesus went into the temple and overturned tables, then he says, okay, what else do we know about the temple and Jesus? Jesus and the temple issues. You then go to sayings of Jesus, attributed to Jesus, where Jesus is saying something about the temple. Lo and behold, in the Gospel of Thomas even, but Sanders doesn't focus on the Gospel of Thomas, but in the Gospel of Thomas even, you have Jesus saying, I will destroy this temple. You have the narratives in all of the synoptic Gospels. Remember, they're dependent upon one another in some way. However, all of the narratives have people accusing Jesus during the trial of claiming he would destroy the temple. You have multiply attested, recurring references to Jesus both doing things, symbolic of destroying the temple, and Jesus saying things about destroying the temple. Whether it was that he was saying God was going to destroy it or not, who cares? The point is, Jesus destroying temple, those things go together. And we have it multiply attested. Sure, the narratives in the Gospels say it's not the reason Jesus was killed. Their whole point is it was a false accusation in the narratives uh, of the Passion narrative, sometimes. Shortly after that temple incident in Mark's narrative, when he's overturned tables, then you have in chapter 13, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings, pointing at Herod's temple. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. All of this is interpreted by Sanders within a restoration of Israel perspective and apocalyptic perspective as well. Namely this, when you look at contemporary evidence from decades and centuries around Jesus, you find recurring themes within Judean literature. Not all Judeans think like this, but you see recurring themes. One of the themes builds on something that's been there ever since the Hebrew prophets. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the ones that ended up in the Hebrew Bible. They were living at a time when Israel had been destroyed by foreign powers, where the Babylonians had destroyed the temple and taken away in 586 BCE the Judean upper classes that we referred to before, the exile. So those prophets in the Hebrew Bible were living at a time where God's temple had been destroyed and God's people had been taken away. This was a disaster. They looked forward to a time when God would reunite the 12 tribes of Israel, reestablish Israel in the land of Israel, and have God ruling properly the way it should be over Israel. And they're coping with the issue, and they're looking forward to the time of the reuniting of God's kingdom, is a way of putting it so that you'll start to understand how it fits here. The reuniting of Israel, God's people. So Sanders looks to contemporary sources that develop those notions in particular ways. The one of his favorites is the Psalms of Solomon. The Psalms of Solomon, not the Songs of Solomon, Psalms, are collected together usually in what is known as this Old Testament pseudepigrapha. They're Judean writings from the first century BCE, most likely, that we still have, that just didn't end up in any other canonical collection or anything. So in them, we have this scenario that Sanders sees in various places. The scenario is this that there will be in the reuniting of Israel when God brings back his people to rule over them, there will be a reassembling of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, for centuries, there's, the 12 tribes haven't been getting along. The 12 tribes had been united loosely before there was King David. 
King David's ruling in the 900s BCE, the 12 tribes are together. Solomon, 12 tribes are together. So there's a very short period where the 12 tribes are ruled together, and then they're breaking in, broken into the southern and northern kingdom. And then they break up even further. And then Judea is the leftovers of Judah, the tribe of Judah. And so there's this looking forward to the 12 tribes of Israel being reunited in the land of Israel. There's also a focus on what will happen to the nations. Nations is sometimes translated Gentiles. By nations, Judeans in this period mean people that aren't Judeans. And they usually include things like the Babylonians or the Assyrians that have conquered us, the foreign powers that are dominating us, the Romans, the Hellenistic kings, whoever's in charge at the time. These are the nations and the people of those nations are the Gentiles. Within this scenario, there's a reassembling of the 12 tribes of Israel and either the conversion or subjugation of the nations. There's this idea of foreign domination and overcoming foreign domination as part of this. Politics is bound up in the religion, isn't it? And the Gentiles are going to be converted or subjugated, either slaughtered or they're going to recognize that the God of the Israelites is the God they should have been worshiping all along. So these are notions attested in Judean literature, contemporary and just before Jesus. The third one, the restoration of Jerusalem's temple. But in this literature, there's a looking forward still, even though there already is a temple, to a restoration of a temple. Sometimes conceived as being destroyed and rebuilt, sometimes being conceived as cleansed. The Dead Sea sect did not like at all how the temple was run. They live in the first and second century BCE, just in the century before Jesus. They go out into the desert, not because they think, who cares about the temple, but because they care so much about the temple that they think it's terrible the way it's being run, that they can't handle it anymore, and they leave. They look forward to a new temple that's pure, that's run properly, where the Zadokite priests are back in order instead of the Hasmonean or Maccabean priests. So this idea of a, a restored temple is not unique to Jesus, or however you want to put it, right? This is part of a broader context in Sanders' view. Finally, once Israel is restored and the 12 tribes of Israel are restored, there will be perfect worship of the Israelite God together, centered on this restored, pure temple. So we have these four elements repeated in various contexts that build upon the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, but nonetheless go in different directions with it, sometimes apocalyptic, including that scenario of the final intervention of God, the final battle in which evil powers are overcome, and then the setting up of a perfect kingdom. So Sanders believes Jesus thought like this, that Jesus believed he would play a role in God's final intervention to reestablish Israel, to reunite the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus chose 12 disciples precisely because Jesus himself believed that they would be heading the reunited 12 tribes of Israel, and that Jesus looked forward to a time imminently, any moment, when the temple would be destroyed and felt he had a role to play in it, so much so that he went into the temple and overturned the tables to show what was coming. This is exactly what got Jesus killed. Going into the temple in Passover and talking a lot about destroying the temple. The temple remembers the political center of Judea as well as the religious center. Talking about destroying the temple isn't a great idea. Going into the temple and overturning the tables in a sort of violent manner during Passover, not a good idea. Put the two together, you got a dead guy. So this is the quick way of putting it. I'm not trying to make fun of Jesus' death or anything. I'm just putting it bluntly. 
what we were doing was getting a glimpse into how historians or how New Testament scholars approach getting at the Jewish peasant Jesus. And the whole point of discussing Crossan on the one hand and Sanders on the other is, first of all, they're somewhat representative figures within modern scholarship. In other words, they're both highly respected in their own camps. But also to illustrate the fact that despite the concerns to use careful methodology and despite the common ground they have in the concern to reconstruct history in a careful way, each of them end up with a different portrait of Jesus. We saw how Crossan's Jesus is a non-apocalyptic Jesus, and that Sanders' Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet. A Jesus who is all about talking about the imminent end, and perhaps even feeling that he himself has some sort of role to play in God's plan to bring about the imminent end and the establishment of God's rule in a more future way. But imminent future, but nonetheless future. So we notice that difference in the overall portrait. That arises to some degree as a result of the other thing I wanted you to notice, namely the difficulties there are in reconstructing any ancient history and then the heightened difficulties there are when you start and, and get at some obscure peasant 2,000 years ago. And so scholars try and develop somewhat useful methods to do that, however, there's so many stages of decision-making in the methodology with each scholar making a different decision at the different stages that can end up resulting in so many different pictures of the historical Jesus. So, for example, Crossan's decision of what goes in the earliest strata, you know how Crossan was careful about dating things and trying to position literature and position traditions about Jesus in different strata? whether it's from 30 to 60 CE, from 60 to 90 CE, etc. Well, even the ch that initial choice of what goes in what strata is a choice, right? It's a scholarly informed decision, but a decision someone else could make differently, another informed historian. And then that becomes the basis of the next step in reconstructing the historical Jesus, etc. And this holds for any scholar that's doing it. It's those scholarly decisions at all different levels of the investigation that result in different results. What does this tell you? Everything they come up with is tentative. And the historians will admit it usually and explicitly say it. Maybe not in their popular writings, but in their more scholarly writings, they'll say to you, this is tentative. This is just one option in how to reconstruct things. And so it's important to remember that. So we'll get into our approach to Jesus next time. We're going to start talking about the archaeology of Galilee, the history of Galilee, and get that context that will allow us to place Jesus. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The opening music of this series in the podcast is Paradise Lost, by Namgyal Lamo, a Tibetan artist. You can find her on the web and you can buy her CDs at Amazon.